Jim Derogatis has been a music critic and journalist for several years, and he's best known for his work on R. Kelly. I interviewed him in his office before Columbia College was closed during the virus epidemic. We're here at Columbia, where I'm a new person here, but you've been here for a while. How long have you been here? I think this is year 11. I did two classes as an adjunct, and I've been full-time for 10 years. And what do you teach here at this point? I'm in the Department of English and Creative Writing, not journalism, not communications. Uh, In the spring, I teach reviewing the arts and cultural criticism and the arts and a readings course called Journalism as Literature. Uh, We start with Truman Capote and Tom Wolfe and Joan Didion and go up to Susan Orlean and, uh, you know, John Krakauer and Michael Lewis. Uh, Notion that journalism can be literature. Uh, And in the fall, I have these two giant first semester, first year student classes. I had 350 in two sections uh, last fall, music and media in Chicago. Uh, As part of what they call the Big Chicago Program, every student coming to Columbia, and 60 or 70 percent of them are from out of state, uh, are introduced to Chicago through one of a number of prisms, uh, architecture, politics, civil rights movement, uh, dance, uh, and I do music and media. And uh, at this point, how would you, this is a broad question, but how would you define journalism? Like, what do you tell the students? Uh, (laughs) Democracy dies in darkness. Journalism's our last best hope. Uh, I mean, there's two, there's two ways to define it. There's the state of dead tree media, I say, uh, days after both my wife, who was at the Tribune for 19 years as an arts editor, and Greg Cott, my radio partner, who was there for 40 years, 30 as pop music critic, um, took the buyout. You know, I mean, journalism as we knew it uh, for about a century or so is in a period of, of radical disruption, the techies call it. The techies are causing it, mind you. Um, you know, but it isn't as necessary as it ever was. So the idealistic definition is, uh, you know, that, that, that jokey line, uh, comes from an Irish play that's a century old, you know, uh, um, making me uh, comfortable, uncomfortable, and uh, uh, giving aid to the afflicted, right? Afflicting the comfortable and giving aid to the afflicted. Uh, you know, uh, journalism is part of our system of checks and balances uh, to make sure people te- tell the truth. And in an era of fake news, uh, that's becoming increasingly less valued by some, but, but seen as more necessary by others. Well, how has it changed since you got into it? Well, when I was a journalism major at NYU, you know, there was this new paper that we were looking at and wondering what it would uh, mean for the future, USA Today, McNuggets of News, you know. Um, uh, Obviously, Dead Tree Media is hurtling toward extinction, Uh, but the stories that are covered are still vital, vibrant, and in many cases, uh, better than ever. I mean, what the Washington Post, the LA Times, and the New York uh, Times are doing are uh, absolutely necessary, and and there's some excellent work being done. I think the mode of delivery is almost irrelevant. I mean, you know, what what the Pulitzer Prize-winning reporters at the Post or the Times uh, wrote about in that day's paper uh, had nothing to do with the 
newspaper delivery person who threw it on your stoop. The fact that it's not going to be thrown on the stoop much longer doesn't mean that the work that they're doing isn't incredibly valuable. I think the means of delivery, whether we're reading it online, whether we're reading it on dead trees, or whether we're taking a freaking USB cable and inserting it in the chip that will soon be in our neck, uh, it doesn't have much to do with the quality of the journalism. What's horrifying is when you see a situation like the Tribune, where you have what Vanity Fair described in an excellent article uh, last week, uh, Alden Capital is a vulture hedge fund. They see these as dying businesses that still make some money. So if we cut all the overhead, which means we reduce a newsroom of 130 to 30, as happened at the Denver Post, we can still wring millions of dollars out of it for the next 10 years or so until it disappears. Uh, instead of trying to do what the Post, the Times, the LA Times are doing, um, there's that New Yorker bias, the New York Times and the LA Times, uh, which is to imagine what the new mode of delivery will be and how that is funded. I think in some ways being on public radio, you know, which from the beginning, 50 or 60 years ago, has had this model of if you find value in what we do, please contribute. If it's $5 a month because you're a student, if it's $5,000 a day because you're part of the 1% with a conscience, uh, it doesn't matter. But if what we do is of value to you, please help us continue to do it. I think that that's uh, uh, a model that may well be in journalism's future. Certainly the Times has been examining that, other other publications. I don't know what the new model will be, just that journalism continues to be necessary and expensive. You know, having published Solus in June, uh, the result of 19 years of reporting about R. Kelly, if I had not had for much of that time the resources the Sun-Times had, a cash-strapped struggling newspaper, but the legal vetting, the editing, the repertorial help, I would not have been able to do those stories that have resulted in uh, one of the most successful musicians of the last 30 years facing more charges than anyone in the history of popular music, which, let's face it, men have been treating women very badly since pop music has existed, way before Frank Sinatra, way after Ryan Adams or Chris Brown, uh, and the fact that he faces two centuries in jail if convicted on 43 felony counts in four cases is extraordinary. I don't think that that has registered yet with people, just how uniquely singular that was. Anyway, I needed the help of Abnon Palish and Mary Mitchell and Damon Dunn, the paper's First Amendment attorney, and Don Hainer, the copy editor. Um, I needed the help in July 2017 when I wrote The Cult Story, as everybody calls it, uh, for BuzzFeed. I had an extraordinary uh, editor, Marissa Carroll and Shawnee Hilton over her, two brilliant women. I had a great, great uh, legal attorney, First Amendment an attorney, um, and all of them uh, either quit or were laid off a year later. The BuzzFeed story is revelatory about the state of journalism because I had worked on that for nine months. I spent three months with MTV News under Jessica Hopper before uh, the corporate overlords decided too controversial, not going to touch it. I spent three months with the Chicago Reader, at that point owned by uh, the Chicago Sun-Times. Jim Kirk was the publisher of both before he decided we're not going to publish. And I mean three months of a lot of reporting help of legal vetting. Damon Dunn, who read every word uh, that we published for the first 10 years in the Sun-Times, vetted the Reader story, pronounced it good to go, 
the publisher, you know, it was in the process of being sold again, and so he wasn't going to make waves. And then three months at BEZ. It didn't run at any of those storied news organizations. Uh, I went to BuzzFeed on a Thursday afternoon, and it ran Monday at 6 a.m. So it was in good shape. But we worked for 24 hours for those five days with the lawyer, with the editors, um, and now they're all gone too. It really distresses me. Um, because it poses the question, Margaret Sullivan, the Post, uh, Washington Post media columnist, wrote a great column. It said it makes you wonder how many of these stories are not being told. Yeah, because I wonder if, if somebody doesn't have all that support, how do, you, how do they fact check? It's, it's very difficult. How do you uh, uh, buy a, the court transcript when it's uh, a dollar a page for a, a six-week trial? Uh, how do you, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, how do you pay for the legal vetting, the fact checking, the editing, uh, the reporter? We really need someone to ring that bell in Atlanta and we're in Chicago. Uh, journalism's expensive. And I feel guilty when I talk about this because, you know what's even more expensive? Um, putting a great reporter in a flak jacket and sending her to Afghanistan. You know, I mean, that is, you know, so in some ways I'm, you know, we're talking about cultural reporting, you know, as valuable as the Me Too story was uh, of R. Kelly or what Ronan Farrow did for the uh, New Yorker on, on Harvey Weinstein, Megan Toohey, Jody Cantor in the Times for Weinstein. It's expensive. It's exp- it needs resources. And sometimes you, you, you spend a lot of time on a story that then doesn't pan out. And that's, you know, the only thing more expensive than uh, putting a lot of what's needed into a story that's going to get published and make waves is trying to get a story that isn't quite there yet. You know, I mean, it was for Julie Brown at the Miami Herald with the Epstein reporting. Um, but it, you know, it was only years later that it made its full impact. Well, when you uh, when you were coming up in, in uh, the newspaper biz or you know in journalism, and you had all these people and all this money, the, the business had all this money, well, and then you saw sometimes. So all this money is always re- relative. You know what I mean? I mean, uh, Anne Marie Lipinski gets delayed on the runway of O'Hare when she's editor in chief of the Tribune, and they spend you know six people uh, do do six months of investigative reporting on airport delays, right? I mean, the Sun Times we were always in a lifeboat that was leaking and we're all bailing whether it was the editorial assistant or Ebert you know we're all in the same sinking boat so all this time and money is relative um, but even on a shoestring uh, you know I mean DNA info didn't have tons of money but did a lot of good reporting and it's gone uh, so you need some money you know if you're in journalism you you are accepting that you're not going to ever get paid and you're never going to have all the resources you wish you had but we're at a point where are any resources going to be given to journalists for for a group like Alden Capital the answer is no we're here to pick the bones clean you know for um, civic minded inspiring owners of the New York Times and the Washington Post, uh, the new owner of the LA Times is, is like, yeah, we're trying to figure this out. You know, I, I know they would prefer to be in the black than in the red. They're businessmen, right? Who likes to lose money? But they believe in the mission. Okay, but I mean, I mean, the business of journalism had a lot of money because you didn't start out at the Sun Times. You started out other papers, and you were able to make a living from freelancing and so forth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not nearly the living I would have made if I was an accountant or you know worked at the merchandise mart. Uh, but yeah, I was able to be paid a full time wage, however pathetic, and benefits uh, since I was twenty two. Yeah. 
that's what I'm talking about because now people who are 22, I don't know if they can get those same opportunities like in smaller markets. They can. What's interesting that I've seen in the last 11 years of teaching at Columbia is that first job is out there. The one for 21,005 a year with, you know, some benefits uh, for which you work 80 hours a week and kill yourself. The second job that will enable you to continue to do this for 40 years or more, that's the one that's disappearing. Uh, there is, uh, like like cannon fodder on the battlefield, the young men and women, you know, being thrown into the breach are multitudinous and those opportunities are great. And I'm glad about that. Um, but I hope that by the time the kid I taught five years ago is ready and deserves to have that job at a much bigger organization that will moderately respect her talents more um, in terms of pay. Uh, yeah, that's what I worry about. Okay, um, just you know, as an aside, I've interviewed a lot of people, and I think you're the most literate sounding. Not that those people are not smart, but uh, do you read a lot, or what are you reading now? I, I'm a voracious reader. Um, I don't think there's any such anything, uh, there's no such thing as a good writer who's not a voracious reader. So I read everything. I'm, I'm really fond of history. I just finished uh, A Very Stable Genius um, about, about Trump, the two reporters at the Washington Post. I'm reading a, my second book in about three months by Masha Green, a very great Russian intellectual and good journalist who is now, because she's gay and a mother, was forced to leave Russia and uh, wrote a great book about Putin called The Man Without a Face which is a very good biography of a person who does not have a biography because the KGB erased it. Uh, and now a book that studies five or six uh, people who grew up in Russia post the fall of the Soviet bloc and what their lives have been like. And that wonderfully enticing, brief, sweet glimpse of maybe we're going to be democratic. And now, in fact, they have a worse totalitarian uh, regime than ever. It's a horrifying book. Which well, I think we better understand, you know, because the Russians and Chinese are hacking New Hampshire as you and I speak. Well, what do you think about the state of reading at this point with the Internet and so forth? You know, I, I think we can romanticize this, I say, from my office in the English and Creative Writing Department, right? I mean, I think the vast majority of people have never read. I think if we took the time machine back to the height of the Watergate moment and asked people who subscribed to and got the Washington Post on their front stoop, had they read that day's story by Woodward and Bernstein, I would guess that 90% had read the sports pages, the comics, and the horoscope, right? Um, this sounds like an elitist notion, but it's not. Um, Nietzsche wrote about the talented 10th, and of course he comes with a lot of bad baggage, right? Uh, it's not his fault the Nazis misinterpret him. Interestingly enough, that idea is forwarded by W.E.B. Dubois in, uh, in the post-Civil uh, War uh, South. The talented 10th, one in 10 people you meet in life is truly engaged and fascinated by and knowledgeable about politics, art, religion, sex, and you know, neither Nietzsche nor certainly not Dubois said the other 90% should be exterminated. No, it was the responsibility of the talented 10th to try to inspire and uplift the peasant who just worked in the, in the fields for, you know, for 12 hours, came home, just wants to eat his potatoes and sit in front of the fire. 
or the television, as the case may be. I don't think it's elitist at all. I think a lot of people have never read, certainly never read deeply. If they read the newspaper, it's the sports pages, maybe not the news, and then maybe not books, and maybe not the New Yorker. Um, but, you know, one in ten is still a significant proportion of people. Well, how did you feel growing up um, and seeing, I mean, did you have this concept when you were growing up? Because you're highly intellectual. No, I mean, I was uh, lower middle class, lower, lower middle class Jersey City, you know, before gentrification. Okay, what does that mean? Because we're in Chicago. We're in Chicago. It means Gary, Indiana. All right. Except even uglier, if such a thing is possible. You know, I mean, that road, that drive on the Skyway to Gary is pretty damn depressing. The drive over the Pulaski Skyway, which was the only highway in America that went over a a landfill that was actually on fire. The, the fires were 35 feet down. It was owned by the Catholic Church, interestingly enough. So the PJP landfill, the joke was, it was the Pope John Paul landfill, right? I mean, you know, it was a shithole. I mean, you know, all of that culture is right across the river, Manhattan, the center of the universe. And Jersey City and Hudson County, where I grew up, have the ass ends of the Lincoln and Holland Tunnel. You know, so close yet so far. So lower middle class uh, mom who was working. My dad died when I was five. Uh, and my mom was not a deep reader, deep thinker. But I like to read, and so she encouraged me to read whatever I wanted. And if it was The Godfather or Jaws at age, you know, 12 or 13, they had those racy bits, you know, Brody's wife. Um, you know, my mom, you know, my grandmother, who was a real hellacious, horrible person, would say, why are you letting him read that? And my mom would say, if he's old enough to read a book that big, uh, he doesn't understand anything, come to me and ask me about it, you know. So I, I always read, I mean, because it was a way to escape Jersey City. Uh, by which I mean that is a metaphor of a very narrow, confined worldview. You know, I think as important for me as discovering the music was reading about it and, and the, the writing that put it in context. You know, the Velvet Underground changes my life when I hear it, and the writing by Lester Bangs about the Velvet Underground changes my life because I'm suddenly, you know, there are gay people and, and people who like something called sadomasochism, and there's people who do heroin, and here's this artist who's showing all this rare empathy for these people, and I don't know anybody like that. You know, I'm in Catholic school. I know guys who listen to Springsteen and want to beat me up. And, um, uh, I, you know, I think that anybody who's curious about the world, uh, you know, reads and wants, to, before they get to visit, they read. So do you tell people to read? Oh yeah, all the time, yeah. I mean, you know, it's distressing to have writing classes at Columbia where we, we do the Desert Island jukebox game to introduce ourselves. Give me your favorite book, your favorite movie, your favorite uh, uh, album. And, uh, when I have kids in a writing class who say, oh, I don't really read books, you know, it's like, well, you're not going to be a writer. And I don't, you know, kind of judgmentally don't think you're much of a human being, but maybe I can inspire you. What do you think the key to good writing is? Reading, reading. And also... Uh, well, there's you, a skill, though, in writing itself. Yeah, but you write, you write, you write, you write, you write, and then you write some more. When I was in my first year at the Jersey Journal, uh, I, I had not even graduated college. I began working for the newspaper full-time. I interviewed Nick Tosh's great novelist who just died a couple of months ago. Great novelist and, and journalist uh, and formerly music critic. And he said, you know, what was great about 
the period I came up in, which was the late 60s, early 70s. He's talking about him. I'm, I'm not that old. Uh, is, uh, it was the era of the new journalism. Um, what does that mean, new journalism? It, it meant that uh, Tom Wolfe said uh, that the journalist can use the techniques of the novelist or short story writer and create something more powerful than even the greatest fiction because it's true. Uh, and so, yeah, my course, Journalism as Literature, Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, was on the docket yesterday. And, I mean, geez, you know, it's a book about an obscure murder in 1959 in, in Kansas uh, that is more relevant today than ever. When we have, I mean, because the sentence that everybody misses on the first two pages is, you know, this one night in Holcomb, Kansas, a shot, four shotgun blasts took six lives. And it raises the fundamental question, which still exists, was the state of Kansas any more justified in killing two murderers than those two murderers were in killing four members of a family? You know, uh, isn't murder murder, period? So, and what is justice, right? Heavy questions for Tuesday afternoon, Monday afternoon for uh, college kids who are not used to reading books increasingly. But yeah, I, I, you know, I think you have to be able to make a mess on the page. That's what Nick Tosh has told me. You know, no writer starts out being worth reading. You just write, 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 and then write some more. You read voraciously, and you have to not be afraid to write a lot of shit before you write anything good. And, uh, you know, I had a great journalism teacher at NYU. NYU is a completely different school today than it was in 1986. How's that? I mean, the tuition has increased by, like, Ten times, right? And there's a far le higher level of pretension. You know, it's not Ivy League, but it wishes it was. When I was there, there was already some of that, right? So my my favorite journalism teacher was an adjunct. I think it's similar to what you do at Columbia. It, NYU had a strength in that many of the people who were teaching had just come from doing, right? And then it would, would return to doing immediately after class. Maurice Carroll, Mickey Carroll, uh, was the New York Times man on the first Governor Cuomo, right? And he was our feature writing professor, you know, and he said, if you see something good, steal it. So, you know, the, the persnickety, highfalutin, pretentious students are like, oh, my professor's saying plagiarize. No, Mickey said, you want to be a writer, you got to read. You read the great stuff and you read the shit. And both of them are inspiring. Everything in between. You just read everything. And you see what works for other writers. And you try those things out. And the things that work for you, you put in this toolbox. And eventually that toolbox is full of these tools, and that is your voice. There's nothing new under the sun. I mean, this is true in both punk rock and in writing. You know, <laughs> there's only three chords, right? And that's all the Ramones needed uh, for 40 years. Uh, so, uh, you know, y you read and you see what works, and, y and you try it. And you don't worry when nobody's reading it, and you don't worry when it sucks. Yeah, I was gonna say, um, yeah, because what do you do if you know you know what you're doing is good and nobody's reading it, or you don't have a quote unquote job, or you don't have an editor who's fixing your stuff? How do people stay motivated to do it? Well, I think I think what's good about this moment, what's bad, obviously, is that the digital disruption is uh, depriving people of the ability to. Uh, yeah, I'm an, I'm slightly to the left of Noam Chomsky, but I'm enough of a capitalist that I believe you should get paid to teach. I should get paid to write. You know, we're gonna get make shit, but we should get paid something. Um, what's bad is that what is good is right now if you're a young passionate music critic and you write something that very much needs to be said 
you have the potential, thanks to the internet, to reach as many people, more people, than John Perella is on the front page of the New York Times. And that is really great. I mean, I think that the cream does rise. When somebody says something in a unique voice that needed to be said, that nobody else said, and they do it well, um, the ability for that piece to go viral and to reach people far beyond, you can be in your basement and reach those people that you formerly would have had to be at the New York Times to reach, and, and as many people, or the New Yorker, or whatever you want to, you know, now that doesn't pay the rent. But, um, you know, neither does being in an indie rock band, you know. I mean, you may well be making this music that you believe in heart and soul that is wonderful that, uh, you know, 10 people come to the club and you're lucky to get gas money to get to the next venue. But you can just as soon imagine not eating or breathing as not making your art. It distresses me to think of journalism in that way now, or criticism, excuse me, in that way, uh, because we do need some resources, you know, uh, especially on the journalism end of it. Uh, but, uh, you know, hopefully that'll work out, and you can't worry about that. If you if you can't answer, I can't imagine doing anything else with my life, there's no shame whatsoever to be in a barista at Starbucks and doing your art. I mean, because nobody, if we went over to the other side of the, of, of the English floor here and went to a poetry class, ain't nobody in that class saying, I'm going to graduate and get me a job as a poet. <laughs> it was like, I don't know. I guess Maya Angelou probably made a living, but she's dead, and that job's not open anymore, right? right. Even though she's dead. So, like, get over it. Why do you think um, criticism is important? Ah. Um, criticism is a conversation between people who care passionately about the art. You know, and I don't think there's anything more important in the world than the art. You know, on my beat, you can say, yeah, well, racism and sexism and politics and a woman's right to change. Yeah, it's all in the art. It is all in the art. And the greater truths that endure and stay with us uh, do so because of the art. So I define criticism as an attempt to convey your emotional reaction to a work of art and your analysis, head and heart. It needs both. I, I learned that from Roger Ebert. I learned that from Lester Bangs. And Roger learned it from Pauline Kael, okay? Um, you know, head and heart. It, it, you're writing about emotion and, and about intellect. Uh, uh, you're using emotion and intellect. And, uh, uh, you know, that feeling that you have when you've gone to a great movie or a great play or a great concert and you go to the bar or the coffee shop with someone afterward and you talk for two hours. This was amazing. This is incredible, right? Or this was the biggest piece of shit. I can't believe I wasted $15 on yet another old white man gangster movie by Martin Scorsese, all right? Mean Streets was great. Really hasn't gotten any better. Um, it's important for two reasons. The critic never tries to change the reader's mind about what they think, how they feel about a work of art, all you can do is express how you feel and think about a work of art. Um, and somebody loved the film and I hated it, or vice versa, I read a great movie review by Michael Phillips or by uh, uh, Nathan Lane in The New Yorker, uh, uh, if my opinion is 100% opposed, I'm having to reconsider what did he, what did she see in this work of art that I didn't see? 
So the great critics are not only writing about the art and giving people other things that they may not have perceived, they're writing about themselves, the way they view the world. Because you and I could both tramp down Michigan Avenue to look at Edward Hopper's Nighthawks again, and we're going to see two different paintings. We're two different people. You know, there's a dozen ways to read that painting. The feminist reading, the ladies in red, one character, or one woman, right? You know, the, the, the Marxist reading. We have three people, four people in a restaurant, but nobody's eaten. They could only afford a cup of coffee. The historical readers, it's painted in the early days of World War II. The east and west coasts of this country are blacked out because of uh, uh, the fear that Nazi Germany and Japan are going to bomb us, right? The, uh, the architect's reading. You know, the the great joke that Edward Hopper had is, uh, you know, as someone pointed out, this is a very strangely shaped building. There's no door. And he said, oh, fuck, did I forget the door again? You know, the pure visual artist is it's a color palette of like four colors, right? I mean, there's a million ways to look at that. And we're all different people. The way we see it is, is going to be because we're different people. And I think what better is there to talk about with each other at this time of fundamental disunderstanding and a word I hate, but silo of people into their own narrow interests, uh, what better thing to bring us together than art? You know, sports, politics, you know, who cares about that shit? You know, uh, because, again, that's all in the art. You're listening to the Radio Girl Podcast with Margaret Larkin. And thanks to Jeff Davis, who's at jeffdavis.com. And he's also creating a new website for his art, so you can check that out too. And hopefully you're staying okay during this period of isolation. I've had to go out for work plus work at home, and downtown is totally empty. But I'll keep doing podcasts, so stay tuned. And thanks for listening. Yeah, but um, what about, you know, before there was only really certain voices or there were only certain voices that um, talked about art and so forth. And now you've got social media. So people mm-hmm. don't need the public critic, really. They can just go to their friends. So what do you think about that change? I, see, I having been at the core of my being and still am a punk, right? DIY, bring it, right? If there's a problem in the world today, in the art world in particular, uh, it is not that there is too much smart, passionate, insightful writing about art. When I was uh, just out of college, uh, or still in college in my early 20s, there was a great fanzine edited by a a magazine, do-it-yourself magazine, edited by a woman who was at Northwestern Journalism School uh, with Steve Albini, Liz Phillip, called Matter, right? Why was it called Matter? Because the music mattered. It did, right? It was everything. The new replacements and Husker Du and uh, uh, Sonic Youth, right? And um, her approach to running the record review section was fascinating. Uh, The one she'd choose one writer to do the lead review 650 words main review on a really important album like the replacements let it be and then five or six others who were in her regular stable would each weigh in with 250 words so you got five or six or seven takes on any record that we deemed really important right and not every there were some that were one paragraph right but you know and steve albini would say this is a bunch of drunken assholes at a bar in minnesota right and liz who always was sort of romantically dreamy would say when i hear unsatisfied by steve paul westerberg it makes me want to cry and give him a hug and ernest young jim deregatis would say you know uh as, as raw rough ragged soul derived uh, you know, uh, rhythm and blues, uh, this is the best since the small faces, right? You know, 
love it, hate it. There were reviews all over the spectrum, and it was a vibrant discussion among people who couldn't imagine anything more important than this new replacements record. Why with the internet opening up so many avenues for other people to voice their uh, critiques, that couldn't possibly be a bad thing. The difference, of course, is you know what they say about opinions, right? Like assholes, everybody has one, right? We are awash in a period of more opinion than ever in history, just because of the accessibility of that. And the difference between an opinion and a critique is, you know, on Yelp, the pizza at this place sucks. Mm -hmm. We don't know who wrote that. It could be the busboy gets an extra $5 to criticize the place down the block if he comes in early every day. The pizza at this place sucks because it's overpriced. The sauce is sickly sweet. There's not enough cheese. The crust is soggy. It arrives lukewarm. All right, now that's a review. Doesn't mean it's right, right? That pizza might be great. Uh, I think personally, all pizza in Chicago sucks. Yeah, I was gonna ask you that question. Yeah, what, I'm yeah, from what New York. I mean, it's like, yeah, it should be big triangle with grease, and you fold it in two. Um, but that's neither here nor there. I might not be right. I might be. You know, there is no right or wrong in art. There's only whether your uh, opinion is backed up with evidence, insight, and context. You know, I mean, this is the whole review in the arts class and cultural criticism kind of boiled down. But, you know, I, I, don't, I, I don't see that as any less necessary. And I don't think that the writer who uh, works hard to express her emotional reaction and intellectual analysis with context, evidence, and insight to a work of art has any less credibility for sitting in her mom's basement and doing that review than a writer who's writing for the vaunted New Yorker, if they do it well. You know, so we have this period of equalizing with she has potentially the same amount of, of ability, thanks to the net, to reach readers as the New Yorker. Um, you know, professionalism is earned. It's not bestowed by making a salary. But let's say that person can never make a living from what they're doing, you know, their art, um, critic, critiquing or whatever. What do you think of that? Do you think they should just keep doing their day job? And Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think many people are going to get paid to be a poet, a novelist, a painter, a musician. Uh, the vast majority aren't uh, ever paid. And yet, the world is better and their lives are richer for them making their art. And every once in a while, uh, you know, somebody writes a, a Harry Potter book, you know, that they didn't expect anybody would read. And, you know, I mean, art versus commerce, that's a, a debate as old as, you know, humankind. Let's face it, you know, it is not. No one deserves to make a living, much less get rich and famous off of art. It's not like bestowed upon you, you know. Uh, if the Beatles had sold a thousand records instead of a hundred million, uh, they would not have been any less brilliant. Well, I mean, um, also, I noticed that there's a change in attitude. Like, okay, when I look at your career, which is amazing. See, you're just talking about the Sun-Times and one other thing. But you, I think you really paid your dues and you worked very hard. But then when I see some people nowadays, it seems like they don't understand that that's sort of what you have to do, it seems. Um, or do you see that change in how people are um, approaching their profession? Um, I don't know. I mean, I tend, the people who tend to care uh, and ask me about what I think tend to be the, the really uh, people like me who are too dumb to take no for an answer, too yeah. stubborn, you know, who are just going to keep doing it regardless and banging their head against the wall. You know, I have never been particularly good with the uh, 
you know, Wallace W. Smith the third types, you know, and there were plenty at NYU, and there were a few that I worked with at the Jersey Journal. They're the ones that went on to the New York Times, you know. Uh, and I could have gotten there maybe, but I would have had to go through a year or two in Hartford, Connecticut, and then a year doing cops, you know, in the Bronx in the middle of the night at Newsday, maybe eventually, you know, as like uh, Wallace Smith II had not paved the way for me. So is that how they got their jobs, because they knew people? I think there's still a lot of that. This is the real world, right? Um, but I think, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, why did Jacob Dylan get a record contract? You know, his dad's name is Bob. You know, whatever we want to debate the merits of his music, pro or con, that certainly helped. Um, and I'm from Jersey. Hey, nepotism is a way of life, okay? I just never had any breaks like that. And the most talented people I've taught in 11 years at Columbia, as well as people I've been, I've mentored throughout my career, have been just those who, you know, didn't know nobody who sent them and uh, uh, just kept you know, uh, working away and doing good work and caring about the work and caring to get better. Now, what's different about you and um, other people I've met who are who have the same kind of success or maybe less is um, they don't really care about mentoring, but it seems like you do. Why is that? Yeah, well, I was a 17-year-old, you know, fat asshole in New Jersey, Jersey City, uh, at Hudson Catholic Regional School for Boys in the final uh, semester of uh, senior year. And uh, all the smart kids took masterpieces of Western literature, and the football team and the wrestlers took journalism, because it was short sentences with simple words. And I took both. And I was driving the journalism teacher crazy with all these questions about the difference between journalism and criticism, and what is the new journalism, and what is the role of investigative reporting in the wake of Silkwood and Woodward and Bernstein. And he finally said, look, you are a pain in my ass. Go interview a hero in your chosen field. Write it up. You've got an A. Don't come to class anymore. Do me a favor. So I picked Lester Bangs. And uh, I wrote a letter to the publisher of his latest book, and uh, the only book published in his lifetime uh, that was entirely his own, uh, uh, a quickie fan bio of Blondie. And I wasn't hearing. And, of course, I'm so, like, earnest. I mean, the, the teacher just wanted to get rid of me, but I'm thinking it's April now, and school's going to end and I better find somebody to interview. So I spent this day with Robert Criscow, uh, who was pompous and dickish and professorial. You know, uh, he signed my copy of uh, his late, his first book, uh, 70s Consumer Guide. Good luck in your chosen profession, Robert M. Criscow. And uh, that day, literally that day when I got back home to Jersey City after following Chris Gow around the village as he picked up his mail, um, uh, my mom says, Honey, while you were gone, I got this call from some guy named Lester. And he says, if you want to interview him, he's still game. Come to 14th Street and 6th Avenue and shout up at the sixth floor window because his doorbell doesn't work. And, uh, you know, uh, he'll uh, throw down the keys. And then my mom, of course, becomes my mom. You know, what are you doing? Are you going into New York? What are you doing? Like York. Sodom and Gomorrah. So they Gamora. really talk like that. They really talk like that. My mom did until her dying day last year. Yeah, yeah. It, it, New York was synonymous with Sodom and Gomorrah. So I spent this this afternoon with Lester Bangs, and he was uh, very much, you've seen Almost Famous? 
Yeah, so Philip Seymour Hoffman plays Lester Bangs, and Cameron Crowe was 17 when he met Lester in 1972, and I was 17 when I met Lester in 1982, and we bonded over that shared experience, Cameron and I. And when Hoffman was walking around the set during the making of the film, he was listening to the tape of me at 17 interviewing my hero. Uh, Cameron's hero as well. Cameron didn't have a tape. So, uh, you know, Lester was as interested in me as I was in him. What are you listening to? Who are you reading? What are you writing about? What are you? And I'm like, what are you asking me for? You're Lester fucking Bangs. I'm a fat asshole from Jersey City. Um, but again, it was that conversation. People who care about the art. You know, Ebert would get in a cab and have a two-hour conversation with the cab driver about some movie. You know, he just loved the fucking movies. And he talked as, as much to the cab driver as to Siskel. Uh, so... Uh, you know, th that was a day in retrospect that completely changed my life. It was April 14th, 1982. Lester died on April 30th, 1982. I wrote his biography in 2000, six months before Almost Famous came out. Um, Wait, think, was there a connection between your book and the movie at all or not? No, Cameron was beginning to make the movie and, and drawing all sorts of research help from me. Uh, the book came out about six, nine months before the movie, and then the movie kind of gave a second life, which was great, wonderful. Uh, I didn't get paid, but I'm happy to help Cameron. So um, Yeah, but do you, do you get invited to his parties? I mean, are you on some special list now? No, no, there's Hollywood. See, this is how Hollywood people work. You okay. know, I'd be talking to Cameron, and, and I'd say, you know, God, you know, Hoffman is amazing, you know, and he'd say, "Yeah, well, you know Phil," and I'm like, "No, I don't. I don't know Phil Cameron. Ah, well, you should have dinner with him. I'll tell Phil to have dinner." It's like, I'm not gonna have dinner. With Phil. I mean, I would, but is Philip Seymour Hoffman gonna call me up and invite me to dinner? No, you know. I mean, but famous people, they they are like that. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. What? Yeah. What else about it? So it really is fake out there. Cameron's not fake. But I, they, I think they just assume that all famous people know okay. everybody else who's famous, you know. And uh, to be a famous rock critic, you know, is to be the best chef in Poland. I mean, you know, what is what is that really saying? And I say that as one quarter Polish. I love my Gawumkis and, and, you know, but, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. That day changed my life. And I figure that uh, what Lester did for this clueless fat putz at 17, if I can do that for some measure uh, with uh the be again, the talented tenth, right? Do you connect? Do you connect to every student in your class? No, but if you have two in a class of seventeen that really get it, and you feel you've inspired and imparted something, I mean that's pretty good. And so now, after like eleven years, I've had, uh, you know, I have a a, a great award-winning novelist. Her first novel was just published. Kate Wiesel has been my research assistant, and and like uh, you know happy to help and uh, uh, you know I've had uh, students who've gone on to edit the Onions AV Club and to be at the Reader to be at the Sun Times a lot of kids who, who are getting paid to do what they wanted to do far sooner than I was I was writing for free for fanzines for a very long time before yeah. I was paid to write about music yeah that's what I'm saying is it seems like you worked very hard before you became so successful so well, well, yeah, that's one way to put it. Or you could just say I was too stubborn to give up. <laughs> I don't know if there's a difference. I think this, the, 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 the hidden 
secret of succeeding in the arts is just not giving up. You know, the Flaming Lips, I wrote a book about them. You know, Wayne Coyne was working as a fry cook at Long John Silver in Oklahoma City even after the band was signed to Warner Brothers Records. Warner Brothers, the label that brought you, you know, Bugs Bunny and Frank Sinatra. You know, he's still not making enough money to give up his day job. You know, and that was a, a good 10 or 12 years they were making music before they... And now, now they suck, unfortunately. But, you know, um, they were good for a very long time before they made money being good. And now they're bad, but they've been making more money than they've ever made. And ain't that the way the world works, you know? I mean, how is that? I mean, why do you think that happens? Um, who knows? People have bad taste. <laughs> I mean, Fifty Shades of Grey sold a whole lot of books, right? right. Anybody want to make the case? You know, I mean, I think that a food critic could make the case that McDonald's uh, is a better cheeseburger than Kuma's, you know, I mean, they're fucking insane, you know, but if you honestly believe that, there's no wrong or right in art, make that case. But it's it's the 10 billion served can't be wrong thing, you know. No, I mean, that just means there's 10 billion served. That has nothing to do with quality. If uh, Brian Eno said of the Velvet Underground that they never sold a lot of records, but everyone who bought one went out and started a band or I would add, became a writer <laughs> about music. So, I mean, uh, there's things that influence the world, and there's things that uh, uh, make a lot of money, and only very rarely are those things both. You know, Nirvana sold a lot of records and was a really important band. The Beatles sold a lot of records, you know. But, I mean, the 13th floor elevators are higher in my heart than the Beatles, and they didn't sell anything, and you've never heard of them, so... Well, also, I stopped being a music geek a long time ago. But um, also, when you um, now that you're more successful, has has it opened up doors for you? Like what? I don't know. Like, do you get uh, do you meet with the cool people in Chicago, or do you get to go to L.A. and go to? Do you get invites to things? Is no, your social life good? No, Jesus Christ, no. Oh, never. <laughs> I mean, um, uh, no, I'm, you know, it's a good line that Cameron has in Almost Famous. You know, uh, I'm uncool. I'm always home. Call me anytime, you know, Lester says to him. Yeah, no. Uh, uh, I had uh, half a dozen pieces published in The New Yorker uh, in the last year. Uh, five of those six were about R. R Kelly. And, you know, dreadfully difficult, horrible reporting. Uh, I would much rather have gone to see Parasite and written about that. I had one piece that was fun that I think they threw me uh, a bone. You know, he's been killing himself on this R. Kelly reporting. I, I was writing about how I thought the soundtrack in... Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood sucked and got it all wrong versus the soundtrack in Charlie Says, which is Mary Harron, feminist film director, brilliant, brilliant filmmaker, uh, American Psycho, uh, made about the Manson, right? You know, I mean, because she had that dark, evil psychedelia, 13th Floor Elevators in love. And, and fucking Quentin Tarantino is like positing Polar Review and the Raiders as cool, you know, at which, and there was a million other problems with that movie. They cut all my problems about the misogyny out. Out, you know, but I wasn't reviewing the movie. I was reviewing the music and how how the other Manson movie had better music. But you're talking about writing for the New Yorker. But well, seriously, because I'm not at your level at all, so I don't get invites to anything. So I'm just wondering, seriously, in Chicago. Well, I, but I didn't get the invite. You know, I mean, 
No, but like in Chicago, do you know, you know people. So do people say, hey, do you want to come to my club and hang out or play tennis or whatever? I mean, do, are you part of this? Uh, no, no, no. What do you do? You know, <laughs> no. You know, I'm in a punk rock band that I've been in for almost 20 years, you know, and we play complete and utter shitholes, you know, and then a van full of uh you know three uh 20 year olds from schaumburg pull up and i'm hauling my drums in in february in the snow and they're like is that is that jim dear goddess is that a, you know yeah and i'm holding my drums just like you are no i mean and now i you know i don't i don't know if that world would exist to me if i get invited to dinners with art institute doyens if i was interested but i'm not you well, know, what about I get I get recognized in Starbucks. Yeah. My readers, my listeners for the radio show are all baristas, and once in a while I get a free latte. You know. But you know, I'm reading this book about Royko. Have you read the biography of Royko? I haven't. I just read last year uh, his biography of Daly, which was oh. really good. Boss. Yeah. Boss. Yeah, boss. I made him super rich. But oh, because there's this biography of him, and you know, they're always hanging out at the Billy Goat. Did you do that too? No, no, no. No, I hate the Billy Goat. It was just, ugh. you know, oh, you got to remember, I'm a rock critic. You know, I'm, I'm a music fan. I uh, um, I like shitholes, you know, and, and I mean, I don't think any good music happens at a stage larger than the Vic or the Riviera. I have zero interest in going to Lollapalooza. I considered it a banner day when I got banned for life. Uh, What'd you get banned for? For doing my doing reporting that for the first seven years they were here it was via a sweetheart deal initially signed with the daily administration uh where they were posing as a non-profit enterprise to make money for maggie daly's favorite charity the deal was struck by one of the maneco brothers not the one who murdered the kid his brother uh daly's nephew and then uh you know emmanuel comes in and they continued not to pay a single dollar of amusement taxes something like seven million dollars a year um because Emmanuel's brother, the brain surgeon, not the brain surgeon, the uh, Hollywood talent agency, uh, was a co-owner as 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 uh, the guy who ran William Morris Endeavor. I did not understand why, when I'm at BEZ blogging at that point, the Sun-Times and the Tribune and every other news organization in Chicago is not on that story. But, I, you know, I think the golden ticket, if you were asking for advice, you know, it doesn't work to get invited it works to get work is to have the story that nobody else has and sometimes those are very dramatic and soul-crushing and difficult stories like r kelly or the reporting against Lollapalooza. um and sometimes it's just like there's one guy in all of chicago who knows how to fix analog synthesizers and Radiohead sends their vintage Moog here because he's the last guy, he's a 75-year-old German, and you just know it because you had a Moog and you needed to get it fixed, right? I mean, they can be very dramatic, they can be very big, or they can be very small. But the best journalists, uh, and the best critics for that matter, are always looking for the story that everybody else isn't telling. I mean, literary journalism, right? Breslin, Jimmy Breslin was sort of a hero to the movement, but also a little grimy and gritty in daily newspaper right? He's no Tom Wolfe in his white suit. You know, Breslin famously, uh, and this became a saying for many years in, in newsrooms with editors who cared about writing, is you got to find the grave digger. Breslin went to Kennedy's funeral, and there's 
hundreds of reporters standing behind the ropes uh, and, and writing about, you know, uh, John Boy uh, giving the salute to his dad, right, and the sadness and, 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 you know, and Breslin strolled the cemetery and found the African-American caretaker who had dug Kennedy's grave that morning and interviewed him. So find the grave digger. Find the story that not everybody else is telling. But what's it like to report on a story? That, okay, that's a nice story. But what's it like to report on a story that's difficult and you're the only one doing it and you're alone or you're you know shut out of Lollapalooza or whatever? It's incredibly frustrating. You know, the amount of times I've been called fat, clueless, out of touch, and a raging asshole, um, you know, uh, that's like my entire life. Um, I'm getting to be old enough now at 55 where I'm feeling mighty vindicated. R. Kelly is never going to breathe fresh air again. Lollapalooza has been pretty much exposed as a corporate sham, and it's now owned by Live Nation. And even the, the, the scam businessman Charlie Jones, who started it, now left it just a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, Ryan Adams, you know, famously left this voicemail, uh, you know, calling me fat, clueless, old, and out of touch. I was like three or four years older than I am three or four years older than Ryan you know old man get a clue you don't recognize my genius and now he's been exposed on the front page of the New York Times as another another Weinstein right I mean yeah I'm getting to the point like oh yeah okay that took 10 or 15 or 20 years but <laughs> I was right <laughs> but I mean but during those 10 or 15 years because some of us you know we do notice certain things and um it's not just me, but other people, too. And then you're sort of alone in that. So how did you keep going? How did you keep uh, motivated? Or how did you feel not alone in that? I, I don't think it has anything to do with, in terms of journalism, it doesn't have anything to do with, uh, uh, I mean, you're frustrated. I never felt proprietary toward the Lollapalooza story or the R. Kelly story. Bring it on. I want to see what other journalists can dig up. I don't think anybody covering Trump right now, not Pulitzer Prize winning Fahrenheit, who's been on the finances, not uh, nobody on that beat, uh, is is proprietary and wants to own the story. It's like there's so much shit here that needs to be exposed. Bring on the army. So I just wasn't going to give up. I, when you're talking about a Me Too story, when women are calling you and saying, no one is believing me, no one is listening to me, I admire the work you've done, will you listen to me? I don't think you're a journalist, much less a human being. But to take it out of that ultra-dramatic realm, I mean, you know, Lollapalooza for that matter, I saw these guys destroying the local music scene by getting tax breaks to do it, uh, driving clubs out of business, requiring, uh, you know, uh, radius clauses. If you play Lollapalooza, you can't play anywhere else in Chicago for nine months, right? Uh, and they define the Chicago area as 450-mile radius. That's Madison. That's that's Detroit. That's Ann Arbor. That's Minneapolis almost. Um yeah, I mean, they were scumbags, right? If I was on the retail beat, I'd be just as pissed at Walmart for driving my local hardware store or grocery store out of business. But I wasn't. I was on the music beat. I think as a critic, that just means I believe in this artist, and I don't care if anybody else isn't listening to her. I'm going to keep writing about her until people care because this is amazing and your life will be better for knowing this music. Well, when I first moved to the city 25 years ago, um, there were a lot more local clubs. There's a lot mm -hmm. of local music. There was The Reader. Okay, yeah. so did you work for The Reader back then? or um, I freelanced for The Reader after I left The Sun-Times when I went to... Uh, 
uh, briefly to Rolling Stone and was freelancing before I came back to the Sun-Times. I never worked like full-time with the reader, but I had a, like a dozen reader bylines. Yeah, so what was it like to cover music during that time when there were local things going on? Well, I mean, there still is an awful lot going on here uh, compared even to other vibrant cities that should have a good art scene. I mean, Madison, you know, or uh, Ann Arbor. I mean, you know, it's the corporatization, what Walmart has done to retail, or Amazon has done to retail. Uh, you know, Live Nation has done to local music venues. But that just means you have to dig deeper. It's the VFW hall shows and the DIY shows. And um, I mean, Chicago is still incredibly lucky in that regard. If there's a frustration and it's that people don't realize how lucky they are you better support these venues these record stores these indie labels or they're not going to be here tomorrow um and i'm talking about the ones that deserve to there's plenty that don't you know the hell with them um yeah i, I don't know that question is premised on the idea of a good old days then whether you want to say it was the mid 80s or the early 90s or you know whatever see i and Cott shares this attitude. It's one of the few things we voice exactly the same. Uh, you know, I would not continue to do music criticism on sound opinions or in writing um, if I didn't believe the very best band I'm going to hear is rehearsing somewhere in a loft in Pilsen or a garage in Schomburg right now. And I'm not going to hear them until next week. You know, I mean, the food critic does not say, Phil Vitell would not say, I, I've eaten at Chez Panis. Uh, I never have to eat again. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, Ebert would not say, I, I've seen The Godfather, why ever see another movie, right? But there's this kind of built-in assumption in music criticism that, you know, I saw The Beatles or I saw Nirvana, therefore, you know, nothing else. Like, get, then get out of the way. You shouldn't be writing about music. It, it's, it's, you know, it's happening now. Yeah, I mean, I didn't ask that question assuming it's the good old days because um, I really don't like gangs. So some of those areas, they don't have gangs like they used to. I was just mm -hmm. saying that there were a lot of areas where people would live in a space and then they'd also play and then they'd go downstairs to play at the club or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I mean, I think one of the biggest enemies of art is gentrification, obviously. And I saw that throughout my career. You know, uh, in the early 80s in Hoboken there were already t-shirts I remember Hoboken when Hoboken was Hoboken right <laughs> and the shows I saw at Maxwell's sneaking in underage um, you know formed my love of music no two ways about it and it's you know uh, it's gone and the Hoboken of uh, that was an inspiring mix of uh, uh, Latinx residents and first-generation Italian immigrants who still spoke the unique dialogue of Molfetta, the small mile square harbor city in Italy that they moved then to the mile square city in, in New York and Bohemians artists um, you know it's gone right I mean now you have to go to Newark New Jersey right? there's a lot there's a lot of Newark to gentrify I mean Brooklyn's gone too you know I mean um, and I suppose part of that's natural but the sad part of it is the culture, the art, the food that draws people to a neighborhood then is driven out of business by people moving into that neighborhood. Now, you talk a lot about New York uh, and the East Coast, so what do you think about Chicago? Oh, Chicago's the best city in America. Yeah, New York is incredibly frustrating. You know, the amount uh, you have to kill yourself 
working 90 hours a week to afford to live in New York. And you don't really live in New York. You're in fucking Queens. Who are you kidding? Uh, you know, and yeah, there's the energy excitement and, 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 and art and center of the universe, right? But you can't afford to enjoy any of that because you're killing yourself. It's a much better place to visit. Even today, with gentrification in so many neighborhoods, you know, there's some great stories this week about Pilsen uh, under siege uh, on on NP on uh, BEZ. Um, you know, there's still so much Chicago where you can live and work and own a car because, like, that's important. Whether you need the uh, grocery run or the coffee table from IKEA or you got to hold your drums around, you know, you can still live and work and create here and live way better than you can in New York. Or Los Angeles or Nashville, you know, the three capitals of the music world, right? Uh, and other cities have different things for art, you know, uh, different different art forms. Uh, I mean, you can live and create here, and you can live well. And, and I think that's fantastic. And because Chicago is so big, I don't see that disappearing at any point. Oh, so, what do you think about when people are saying, you know, this is going to become like Detroit here? I don't see that happening at all. Do you? No, I and just Detroit I think that's bouncing back. I mean, the Cass Corridor now has all these antique shops and Jack White's second vinyl pressing plant and record store. And uh, I was in Detroit just a couple of months ago. I mean, Detroit's booming again, you know. And I, look, people have been talking since the day I arrived in Chicago in 1991. People are talking uptown's coming up, right? Uptown's coming. Uptown still ain't up. Uptown still has the crack horse, you know. <laughs> the crack addicted sex workers um you know i mean it's still like you're taking your life in your hands right uh to park and go to the green mill so uh yeah it's a big city and it and the character hasn't been all stamped out i mean i consider like this center of hell to be you know wicker park damon and uh, north you know i mean why I, it's like everything I hated about the worst gentrified areas in New York City, you know. Well, that's what, that's what, that's what I was referring to before, is that, you know, yeah. like that area, you, there used to be a lot happening. There used to be like yeah. all that house music. And yeah, yeah, yeah. But now that's, I'm actually, there's places you'd never expect, like the most vibrant hip hop and, and, and house scene now in Chicago is, is like uh, Bridgeview. <laughs> Cops, sanitation engineers, and, and now uh, rave heads. You know, I mean, it, 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 we're big enough and porous enough that it just shifts. I had no idea about it. I thought just Bridgeview was just a place where people lived. I didn't know that that stuff was going on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and, um, yeah, I mean, it, it just shifts. I mean, so all the hipsters now are talking about Logan, you know, not Logan Square, just Logan, right? You know, so fuck Logan. I mean, you know, go to dinner in Pilsen. You know, there's 10 better places, you know, and you don't have to deal with the fucking bearded, craft beer drinking, pitchfork loving hipster. Um, yeah, but I mean, the thing about New York, though, is what do you think? Because the people here, I think, are different. So what do you think about the difference? Yeah, well, there's no, uh, there's a no bullshit attitude here. You know, New York and L.A. are about uh, posing, right? And the charming thing about Chicago that I really love is, you know, uh, it's, it's a Jersey saying, but it transfers well to Chicago. You know, people here can't get away with thinking who they are. You know what I mean? It's that notion of Royko and Ebert uh, talking for hours at the bar with the cop and and the fireman and the sanitation engineer and the barmaid who's smarter than all of them. Uh, and they're talking philosophy, sex, politics, religion, 
and the fucking Cubs. And it's only the Cubs that I'm not interested in. Um, you know, so... Uh, Are you a Cubs or a Sox fan? I, I, I hate football. That's a joke. Yeah, I hate I all the sports. You know, I can tell you all the guitarists, five guitarists in Moby Grape in 1967, and I, I have no fucking idea of a single name of somebody on the Cubs or the Sox. Um, yeah, I, I, I am not at all. But the... Yeah, I, I, there's a lack of pretension. There's a, a, a gritty... Uh, I mean, it's Studs Terkel, right? I mean, Studs would interview a pope, and Studs would interview the piano tuner, you know, and and they were all fascinating uh, to him. You know, it's that great... uh, I mean, Chicago is is this kind of... um, You know, it is the city that works. You know, don't give me your bullshit, just get your work done. And whether that work is sculpture or photography or or music or, uh, you know, bacon bread... um, and I, I think that that's great. I think there's a no bullshit attitude here about that. And yet, there's enough people to support an adventurous chef, a storefront theater, an art gallery, uh, an independent club. Um, you know, people are hungry for art. Just don't pretend to be somebody you're not. Let me know what you think. Email me at margaret at radiogirl.us. You can also call or text me at 716-202-TALK. That's 8255. And like the Radio Girl Facebook page. You can find out about who's coming up next, see pictures, listen to audio, and more.